Hello and welcome back to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and the Multicultural Mess. We are going to t- finish this uh, this chapter on feminism and we are going to talk about domestic abuse, specifically in Islam. This is in, uh, in reply to the... Um, the episode on India TV that we uh, we talked about a little while ago, a couple of days ago, uh, it was a hit. It was a real uh, first in Indian history. Uh, it was a debacle, uh, you know, a, a watershed moment in Indian history, Indian uh, television history, where a bunch, uh, where a group of ex-Muslims never seen before, never, you know, never admitted before in reality, um, but. It is here now because Islam says no one leaves Islam. It's it's perfect. And all of a sudden you've had this movement going on. Uh, the ex-Muslims now came on TV. It was uh, accepted um, that the, it is here in India and here to stay. It's a tsunami that's coming your way. Um so um they talked about uh, the lady on on the sh- on the podcast uh fantastic lady uh i went on her show and and we have a i have a um an episode on her show talking about uh, my journey as an ex-christian and violence in in christian homes uh, domestic abuse on children and how it happened in my home and that's why we're leaving christianity um and I talked about it, how it happens. Uh, she talked about uh, violence in Islam uh, and how the Quran says that you must beat your women. And of course, the, the male chauvinist uh, mullahs and tullahs and the clerics and the people said, you know, uh, literally, you know, went against her uh, but she stood her own fantastic lady you have to listen to the episode on indiatv.com, ex-Muslims. Um it was a watershed moment, and so we're going to talk about it uh, today. Um, and I, it, 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 it sprung a chord, like I said, because I went to my own uh, episode of that in my home. So domestic violence in Islam, okay, in relation to the chapter on feminism. So domestic abuse, and it starts with. I'm going to start with a surah from uh, from the Quran, uh, chapter four, verse thirty-four. Um, We've seen it all before and we've heard it, how the Quran allows men to strike a woman. So men, it says, men are in charge of women by what Allah has given one over the other and what they spend from their wealth. So the righteous women are devoutly obedient, guarding in the absence of what Allah would have had them guard. Uh, but for those whom you fear, arrogance and advise them, forsake them in their beds and strike them. But if they obey you, seek no means against them. Indeed, Allah is ever exalted and grand. The Arabic word here is vad va idribu hunna. I'll repeat that. Va idribu Hunna, that's the Arabic word you use, which means to strike them in in this context. It is also it has another meaning. It means set forth. Okay, that means to go forward, to go away, and that explanation is used in Surah forty seven point four and Surah two point sixty, which uses the same verb to strike them. But the translation in that context, uh, in in uh, in Surah two point twenty six, says set forth. 
Uh, it's a different context. Now, like I said, Arabic is a Semitic language. It has roots, and from that root, you have multiple meanings, and depending on the context. So you cannot take a word from one surah and go to another surah and say, see, well, it says this here, and it, it has to say the same same thing there, okay? So the issue with, with the Quran is that there is no sequence of data or context. You have to, you, you have to take a verse from one chapter and match it with another. You cannot take a verse from one chapter and match it with another chapter based on your modern um, interpretation to camouflage the past. Um, so, um, and to camouflage your interpretation, uh, to camouflage the past, which is against the foundation of the Arabic languages and Semitic languages in, in general. In reality, each verb has a root from which you get several words which can be used in different contexts with different meanings. However, when you force someone to submit to your authority, that in itself is violence. So when you tell someone that you are weaker than me, um, you must obey, when you use the must, should, these are words that are violent words. It, 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 um, it has a violent connotation that you must subjugate yourself. You have to do what I ask you. It's a the word the the vocabulary, the word must, should, have to. Remember this very clearly, these are violent words. Um so you cannot force someone to submit to your authority. There is no set there is no set forth in this context. The end goal of the worst in, is submission of women to men, and that in itself is violence. So the word, the the verse, the surah uh, four thirty four verse uh, surah four uh, verse thirty four is asking men to use some type of violence, however small, however big, and however they interpret it as, they, they're asked to use violence, okay, to subjugate someone who does not agree with you. Verses on women on any other con context for that matter can be all over the Quran, the Hadith, the Sunnah, the Seerah. However, every time you pull one out, the orthodoxy will pull another one out to contradict you and play musical chairs. So, for example, in, in Surah 4, verse 19, it says, Oh, O you who believed, it is not lawful for you to inherit women by compulsion, and do not make any difficulties for them in order to take part in what you gave them unless they commit a clear immorality, and live with them in kindness. For if you dislike them, perhaps you dislike a thing, and Allah makes therein much good. So, again, we have patriarchy, very patchy patriarchy, and all of a sudden you have matriarchy. Very fact that you're asking a person to be obedient to you is one thing because she's inferior. This is not equality, it's supremacy. Now, there is a book, there is a, a person in the United States called Dr. Bill Warner. He's a PhD um, and he's written a book on Islamic doctrine of women. 
and from his book, he says 70% of the words on, on women in the Quran and 89% in the Hadith give them a low status. 23% Quranic words and 10% of Hadith words on women give them equal status. The high status is only 5.3% of the vocabulary in the Quran gives you five uh, gives women high status and 0.6 in the Hadith. Uh, so really, you know, when someone wants to say, oh, well, Islam's giving you a lot giving women a lot of status, it's only 5.3% of the words. The rest is all either equal or lower status. That's not good news. That's what he says. Therefore, to camouflage this worse in 1,400 years of violent history, you have modern translations putting in brackets meanings and translations to suit their agenda. In reality, no one has the right to put anything in brackets to suit their interpretation. So you get apologists saying only on the third attempt, or only with a toothbrush, or only with the end of a stick. Beat them, but leave no marks. It's a metaphor. Uh, it's violence, period. When a human or an, even an animal is enraged, do you think you can say first or last or don't leave any mar marks? Your currents and waves. Try slowing down a wave and see where you will get. The bottom line is something which all Muslims know and will tell you perfectly well, but away from the camera. Islam is a patriarchal religion that which subjugates women in print and in reality. So while there are good verses and verses that promote good re relations, the majority of the Islamic verses that towards women are derogatory. In my opinion, empires are made out of runaway people who swap sides, grow into their own faction, and then ally with or later amalgamate into a bigger alliance to form a new empire. Like I mentioned in chapter 8, uh, in, in, in a previous uh, chapter, Islamic empires were um, based out of uh, people uh, forming alliances, uh, tribes coming from Europe, Celtic tribes, um, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, that's 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 a lot. Uh, so European tribes, all the way African tribes, they all bought their cultures, they all bought their ideologies, they all bought their mentalities, and they recreated the mentalities in the Quran, in the image of the lands they left behind. And so you got all these various verses contradicting each other, and then they put God on top of it. But it's not God; it's it's culture. It's it's local culture that's been rebranded in order to form a political movement. Unfortunately, um, <clears throat> it is with what it is. And um, you find this in Celtic-speaking pe people, in, in uh, which is modern-day Ireland, I think. Um, Celtic people could have influenced this new Islamic movement or even joined them. The Celts had a law where a woman could divorce their husband for no particular reason. However, there is one that Allah's Islam put, pulled out of their bag and put in the Quran. The Brihin law of the cells provided that a husband could strike his wife to correct her, but she was permitted to divorce him if his blow caused a blemish. That means the man could hit the woman, but if it left the mark, he could, she could divorce him. Translation, the cells are in the Quran, my friends. So... 
Yes, unfortunately, that is what it is, in my opinion, uh, going around and in, in researching this domestic abuse in the Quran. So you can get it both ways. Uh, depends who you're interpreting, whatever they're trying to sell you. Uh, the bottom line, it's a patriarchal religion run by men. And, and here we go. Um, so we'll just go to another uh, concept in which, which concerns feminism again. Inheritance for women. Islam likes to say that they were the first religion to give inheritance to women, uh, women's rights, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think they talked about it on the program, not sure. Uh, but uh, again, it was a long program, so I don't remember really. I apologize. But let's just talk about it since we're on the topic of feminism. From from this, we get a very important topic shouted on out all over by Islam. Islam gave women inheritance rights uh, prior to the whole world. This is an absolute falsehood for those apologists everywhere and only half the story. Typical is an understatement. So in Islam, a woman cannot do anything without a vali. A vali is a guardian. Okay, the concept of vali is mentioned in worse Quran. Surah 2.27, associated with God as a friend of all believers. So God is your valley, he's your guardian, he's a friend of all believers. He's also the guardian of all mankind. This then becomes associated with Islamic saints. The concept is often used in different formats by different Islamic groups, schools of thought and factions. Subsequently, in Islamic law or jurisprudence, which is the fiqh, a vali is a protector or a guardian of women in marriage. Islamic jurisprudence, although based on the Sharia of the Quran, for legitimacy is man-made. That means we know very well Islamic jurisprudence, we say that Sharia law, there's no such thing as Sharia law. It's either Sharia, which is the way, and law, Islamic jurisprudence, which is man-made and attached to the Sharia to give it legitimacy. But God did not make any any law. No law has he made. So it's a man-made concept. Um, it was put together by the sec second caliph, Umar bin Khattab. So right from the beginning, even before the Quran was compiled in its entirety, Umar was already putting in laws for the concept of inheritance concerning marriage and family law where women would need a vali. So before the Quran was written... Um, the second caliph Umar, he he wrote down the fiqh. He wrote about thousand, if I'm not mistaken, thousand uh, uh, readings, writings on the fiqh, and he put in this concept of vali. And the Quran was not written down. Now everyone says the jurisprudence was written after the Quran was was written down, and it was based on the Quran. But that's wrong because the fiqh was begun to be written down prior to the Quran, and the concept of vali was written given by Umar uh, with concepts to, to the women. Um, and he he died before the Quran was written. Something not mentioned specifically in the Quran. All four schools of law in Islamic jurisprudence follow the law laid down by Umar. In the absence of clear consensus in the Quran and a wide range of options for Islamic scholars, the concept of Vali became more and more patriarchal. So when men have power, 
Do you think they're going to give some you give you some sort of leeway to women to inherit the land without any manipulation, to negotiate money, to sign contracts, to keep any money for themselves? Even Muhammad's first wife, Khadija, who was a businesswoman, employed Muhammad as her merchant as she could go on caravan trips and negotiate contracts by herself. Luckily for Muhammad, for her, Muhammad was sincere, but what about the others? Similarly, other women would have needed a guardian too. This looks like a pre-Islamic tradition that became Islamic later on. If a woman's testimony is half is worth half that of men, and the men have the right to abuse her and beat her, giving women inheritance rights meant nothing as she had a valley which had totalitarian control over her in the terms of marriage and contracts. So when you give half a statement and omit the context of patriarchy that ruled society, your inheritance is worthless. Besides, the Abrahamic tribes, Arabia, parts of Africa, and South Asia were ruled by matriarchal societies prior to Islam, where women had rights. So how did Islam all of a sudden give given women's rights? They were already there. This junction brings about a question. If the Sharia from the Quran is the way prescribed by Allah in Islam, and all laws are based on it, on Allah's way, why would jurisprudence put in in prior to Islam. Umar made at least thousand rulings, like I said, it is said, and this was prior to his death, that is prior to the Quran being compiled in the totality uh, by 652 AD. So did the fiqh influence the Quran or vice versa? If the Quran is the ultimate compilation, how can you even begin to write a law when you are not sure what is going on in the Quran? Especially if the Sahabas are dying and your caliphs are burning variations of the Quran. Or is this fic a translation handed down by the Hebrews? Let me tell you what was handed down by a previous kingdom to form an, and that alliance and bolster their strength. The Nabataean customs. In Nabataean times, women had equal strength standing in civil society. Nabataean funerary inscriptions on tombs indicate that women's rights in inheritance and control over their property. They could own tombs as women in any capacity, including in conjunction with a man or by herself with any, without any limitations. She also had rights as a man in being their legal heir. They were able to conduct their own commercial activities and legal individuals by their own right. In 1961, a team of archaeologists found in southern Israel scrolls similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls, held today by Israel, the Israel Antiquities Authorities. Um, and it said she, the scroll said that she, the lady in the scroll, owned an orchid of date trees near the Dead Sea at Mahatza. The orchid was adjacent to the lands held by the king. The documents were legal and the women who held this land could read and write. Thus, women could own and transfer property in the Nabataean civilization. If these women later joined the Islamic movement, when it means that they could have negotiated their rights to be transferred and guaranteed by the new alliance. Um, so, um, so this this concept of property and owning property was in the Nabataean traditions. And when the Nabataean women, or a lot of them, joined the new Islamic political movement, they, they, 
they made sure that they they would have made sure that they they got the same rights and they guaranteed it. They're not going to go for less rights. So that's how it would have ended up in the Quran. But the source of this is Women in Nabataean Society by the Hashmet University, Queen Rania Institute of Tourism and Heritage. It's on YouTube if you want to take a look at it. Uh, Women in Nabataean Society. So there we go. Uh, this is how uh, this is my little uh, contribution to feminism, and or should I say, the hypocrisy of feminism, and what it was in in um, in in previous times. Now I'm sure at its height, for, you know, matriarchal societies were great, but we're cyclic, and like everything else, it goes down the tubes, and they paid a price for it. Then the patriarchal movement was a a, a, a movement that repulsed against the the traumas and the abuse in the in the in the matriarchal uh, civilization we got the end of it the brunt of it and we've gone to the patriarchal side and now patriarchy is doing exactly the same thing what they don't understand is we're going to come a full circle patriarchy will go down and one day and we'll get matriarchy again and look i'm going to say it straight away i would not want a matriarchal civilization i think it's sick uh whichever whatever they did so Whichever way the pendulum swings, feminism, patriot, patriarchy, it's just stupid because we're not about labels. We're not about power. The moment you have power, you get corrupted. Whether you're matriarchal, patriarchal, whatever the label, it's not. It, the problem is power behind this. You have to understand the science behind the power. You are currents and waves. And if you do not understand your currents and waves, all is lost. You are... Uh, free-flowing metaphysical energy and your duty is to balance the metaphysical cosmos and let un unleash the power from the inside. Your metaphysical currents unleash that power, um, the shakti from the inside. As we say, shakti is power in, in Hindi, for those who don't uh, know. And and uh, there we go. Uh, there's no bound, no limits, but do not you know run, I mean... Yeah, when you're in government, sure, you can run out of power, but it is what you need. But in your daily life, if you understand, you don't need power, you don't want power. Um, and if you understand that, you will meet people like you. And, and slowly by slowly, our civilization will get better and we will not depend so much on power, run after power, and we will heal. So this is about knowledge, healing. Um, spreading that knowledge, talk to your friends about this, have that conversation, speak to at least five friends, uh, have that conversation with them, ask them to speak with five friends on, 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 on feminism, the different topics we've talked about, and there are many more topics in conjunction with this. Uh, they're most welcome to go ahead with this. If you want any questions, answers, please do not hesitate to ask me. I'll be glad to ask to reply to your questions. Uh, and uh, yes, write to your uh, elected representatives, ask them to talk about this on, on uh, platforms, um, your schools, your colleges, your friends. It's important to have that conversation. This is about having a conversation uh, about concepts that have been put under the rug and you need to get it out, speak about it. Unload, offload your, your negativity, offload your fear, your perceptions, uh, make every junction into an intellectual laboratory and spread the knowledge. And by that knowledge, we can change society and leave a better world for the next generation. Like, like, um, like uh, Guru Nanak did, he gave us knowledge, he gave us freedom, and through that freedom, 
we have got the freedoms and opportunities we have today. And so thank you to him. Thank you to all of you for listening. Remember, knowledge is your best tool for freedom. And uh, this is what we want, freedom for one and all. Thank you very much. You have yourself a great day. Cheers and stay safe.